Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War I. The Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916 to the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails, Remastered. This is the second part of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered Look at the Crimean War, which originally aired as one episode on the 25th of August, 2012. Thanks for joining us for the second part of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered Look at the Crimean War. Last time we introduced you guys to the major themes and issues which occupied the minds of European statesmen in the first half of the 19th century. Napoleon had cast a long shadow, it had to be said, but it was Russia, rather than France, that occupied the role once reserved for the all-conquering French Empire. To preempt Russian victory in the East and the expansion of Russia into the Mediterranean, an Anglo-French effort, something not seen in living memory, was needed to push St. Petersburg back. So began the war, but... I will first take you to an event which occurred some months before the Anglo-French Declaration on the 30th of November, 1853. Peace is an excellent thing and war is a great misfortune, but there are many things more valuable than peace and many things much worse than war. The maintenance of the Ottoman Empire belongs to the first class, The occupation of Turkey by Russia belongs to the second. 
Henry John Temple, the third Viscount of Palmerston. On the night of the 30th of November 1853, the Russian Black Sea Fleet attacked the Turkish fleet while at anchor at Sinop, and destroyed or heavily damaged all of the ships stationed there. This meant that Turkey was now defenceless to external naval attack, but it also meant something else to Britain in particular. It was now Russia's Black Sea Fleet, which posed the biggest threat to Britain's Mediterranean interests, and because of this, though Russia and Britain were at peace, the widely held view in Britain was that such a fleet that Russia now owned could not be allowed to exist. Such motivation might seem a bit ridiculous, but British statesmen were deadly serious about the potential damage that the Russian fleet would do. It was the leading cause for the increase in sabre-rattling, and the aforementioned ultimatum was issued to Russia with the expectation and hope that she would reject it, and Britain would appear as the noble crusader out for justice. This manipulation of events was helped by the newspapers in Britain, who reported on the Turkish disaster at Sinop, and emphasised the barbarity and ruthlessness of the Russian sailor, who was said to have invited the drowning Turkish sailors aboard and then hacked them to pieces as soon as they climbed onto the Russian ships. Crowds gathered in London despite the lack of evidence for any such massacre, and demanded something be done to punish the Tsar. It was just what the British government wanted. Terry Brighton wrote that, The politicians in London were not about to fight and, from their perspective, fund a war merely because the press and public clamoured for action. They needed a much stronger reason for that, and they had one. Whether it was a massacre or not, the action at Sinop had proved the power of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. It was a naval challenge to the British, who supposedly reigned supreme on the seas of the world. This is why we have the Crimean War, and not the Three Years' War, the Russo-Turkish-Anglo-French-Sardinian War. Not only does Crimean sound much better, but it was the theatre which both Britain and France were most focused on, mainly because of this Black Sea fleet. The First Lord of the Admiralty, Admiral Sir James Graham, wrote to Lord Clarendon, the British Foreign Secretary at the time, advising him on what had to be done about the Russian situation, when he noted, The operation which will be decisive is the capture and destruction of Sevastopol. The eye-tooth of the Russian bear must be drawn and his fleet and naval arsenal in the Black Sea destroyed. Britain's French ally had been convinced of the threat posed by the Russian fleet in the Baltic to the influence that both enjoyed in the Mediterranean. The British ambassador in Paris, Lord Cowley, reported to Clarendon that the French would join any move against Russia and provided an interesting note of his own within the correspondence. He wrote... How I rejoice at your determination about Sevastopol. It was but the other day that I said to the Emperor that if we let slip this occasion to do up the Russian navy in the Black Sea, we should repent it bitterly. Therefore I say burn and destroy everything, and send double the ships to do it if necessary. It really is incredible if you take the time to read the kinds of letters people sent to each other back here, how ridiculous it all sounded. I know it was a different age when war meant different things to what it means nowadays, but seriously, did everyone forget the Napoleonic Wars? How costly that 25-year period was in European history? How the nature of the struggle had divided the continent, and how new technology tore pieces out of the men in uniform? Brighton puts the situation best when he says... The real reason for declaring war on Russia had less to do with defending Turkey or any higher battle on behalf of goodness and justice than with giving the Russian bear a beating, preserving the supremacy of the Royal Navy and protecting the trade routes to India. It was a sheer stroke of luck that the Russian massacre of Turkish sailors at Sinop 
had the British clamouring for an attack at the naval base at Sevastopol, the true but as yet unacknowledged target of British and French armies now on the march towards their embarkation ports. If the only thing Britain and France wanted was the status quo, then they would never have gone to Crimea in the first place, since Russia evacuated Wallachia and Moldavia relatively quickly. The British and French campaigns first focused on Varna, a seaside resort and modern-day city of Bulgaria, on the Black Sea coast 300 miles from Sevastopol. This was used as a base from which British and French soldiers could defend their Turkish allies in the event that Russia might become too much for the Turks. The short story is that Turkish soldiers prevailed, much to the surprise of all parties involved. The untold story is the absolute disaster that the British endured in getting their fleet and forces from the British ports at home to the eastern Black Sea coast. It was a terribly damaging and demoralising journey for British soldiers and sailors alike. Battered by awful storms and conditions aboard the ships, many died from the diseases which began to run rampant on board. The spread of disease was a sign of things to come for all involved, as many more would fall to the epidemics of cholera and dysentery, which killed so many men and horses before they even made their presence felt in the war. In the sea journey of 3,400 miles from embarkation to disembarkation, the British would lose 200 horses completely, with a further 200 being so badly wounded by the journey that they could barely stand. This was sheer logistical mismanagement, and British planners could only blame themselves for the horrendous loss of life in the journey. Captain Robert Portal, who had been on the ship, Star of the South, that transported 300 horses to Varna, commented in his diary on the 28th of May, 1854. Two horses got perfectly mad from the heat, and at last became so dangerous that they had to be destroyed. I'm afraid we shall lose many more from the intense heat. These poor beasts that stand below, close to the engines in perfect steam, all day and night too go mad. We ought to not have horses there at all. This is the point where I feel it's best to introduce you to your two British cavalry commanders, Lord Lucan and Lord Cardigan. It is to these two dashing aristocrats that much of the blame for the coming disasters, some of them world famous, can be given. Just reading about these two guys, how little they cared for their own men, how they had approximately zero military experience before leading such important regiments, how their flagrant and frequent wasting of lives would cost the British strategy so dearly, and how they allowed their own mutual animosity and hatred of the other to get in the way and often impede military action, it just reeks of stupidity, arrogance, amateurism, and, well, a complete lack of professionalism from the top down. I know I'm supposed to be your even-handed host, but every now and then characters like these two come along and I find that a real struggle to remain objective. I hope you'll forgive me, but at least I'm admitting that I'm not being objective. I suppose most of the blame should really fall on whatever person or institution of the military deemed it acceptable to send these tools out to command, when it was so obvious that neither had any business being anywhere near such responsibility. Britain was shooting itself in the foot, almost literally, and as we'll soon see, you can only do that so many times before you and your entire campaign becomes crippled. After the Turkish successes along the Danube, the Allied decision was made to move to the Crimea. Sevastopol and the Russian Black Sea Fleet were the primary targets, and the troops were moved en masse to disembark north of the city. Okay, so for those that don't know, it's mind map time again. The Crimean Peninsula is a strangely shaped piece of land, jutting out into the Black Sea. 
the best way to describe its shape is an odd-looking diamond with the right side of the diamond stretched out to touch another bit of land jutting into the Black Sea. If you can imagine that the majority of the action on the Crimean Peninsula occurs on the left side of it, and that Sevastopol itself is the port just on the bottom tip of the diamond, then you'll be able to understand its importance a bit better. On the 14th of September, the invasion of the Crimea began, little more than 50 kilometres north of Sevastopol. The infantry were ferried across, followed by the cavalry who were lowered precariously into horse rafts and then towed ashore. I can't help but feel sorry for the horses in this situation, and indeed the entire war, as Lord Paget described the scene. It is distressing to see the poor horses, as they are upset out of the boats, swimming about in all directions. They swim so peacefully, but look rather unhappy with their heads in the air and the surf driving into their poor mouths. Only one has drowned yet. The logistical problems which seemed to plague nearly every aspect of British planning were apparent here too, as the forces which were expected to fight in the coming months were disembarked, slowly but surely. After enduring a night exposed to the full force of the elements, which included the traditional autumn rains that Russia was so famous for, the soldiers emerged the week after landing as wet, tired, hungry and thirsty men. The plan was to march ten miles to the River Bulganic, the next source of fresh water, that was badly needed, but by the seventh mile soldiers began to drop, mainly due to exhaustion, but also because of the cholera and dysentery, which had unfortunately followed the soldiers from the awful conditions at Varna. Lord Paget, who was bringing up the rear with the 4th Light Dragoons Regiment, was well placed to again describe the scene. Writing, The stragglers were lying thick on the ground, and it is no exaggeration to say that the last two miles of this wretched march resembled a battlefield. At 2pm on the 20th of September, 1854, the soldiers caught sight of the River Bulganic and recklessly ran for its supply. Soon the Russian soldiers were spotted, and a confrontation of little consequence was waged for the remainder of the day. It was very nearly all of great consequence, though, as Lord Cardigan was at this stage preparing to march on an enemy across the river, completely unaware of the force of 6,000 men that was waiting hidden behind the hills. It was only after one Lord Raglan received reports of the build-up of soldiers there that he ordered the retreat, but Lord Cardigan's cavalry could not just run away, they would be chased down by the wary Cossacks. What was needed were reinforcements to cover the retreat, but while they moved up, Cardigan's men had to sit and wait in the middle of the battlefield, while Russian cannon pulverised the ground around them. Surprisingly though, even after this immense fiasco, little casualties were actually incurred by Cardigan's men, and the two men that were seriously injured, a sergeant Joseph Priestley who lost a hand, and a sergeant James Williamson who lost a foot, both argued who was injured first, since such an achievement was apparently one to be proud of. Well, I'd rather keep my limbs, thanks. After the small-scale battle at the River Bulganic, the British and French marched to the next river crossing, at the River Alma, six miles further south. It was expected, though, that this time the Russians would put up more of a stiff resistance, and once the Anglo-French force saw what they were coming up against in terms of fortifications, this expectation was proved to be true. Captain George Maud of the Royal Horse Artillery, who wrote... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns ahead to ascertain the situation as part of the advance guard, recalled the scene. After advancing six miles, we came to a very strong position, where the Russians had entrenched themselves on the banks of the River Alma, where the south side runs steeply to about 300 feet. Up the side of the steep slope, the enemy had entrenched batteries with some very heavy guns. They began a tremendous cannonade on us when we came within 2,000 yards. Lord Raglan ordered his infantry to make a frontal attack, which involved marching downhill, crossing the river, and then marching uphill directly at the muzzles of the Russian guns. It was madness, but the soldiers accepted the orders as though accepting a death sentence. They marched towards their objective with a stoical sense of inevitability, and only when the point-blank range enemy cannons started mowing them down in rows did the Allied soldiers begin to flinch. The light brigades were held in reserve to counter any possible flanking attack by the Cossacks, and the infantry pressed on, unsupported by cannon, by the way, into a lead-filled hell while marching in perfect, almost robotic order. Private Timothy Growing of the 7th Fusiliers said of the scene, As soon as the enemy's round shot came hopping along, we simply did the polite thing, opened up and allowed them to pass. As we kept advancing, we had to move our pins to get out of the way. Presently, they began to pitch their shot and shell right among us, a terrible thing, and our men began to fall. I know that I felt horribly sick. The Battle of the Alma River was a sign of things to come in other ways too. Equipment lovers, pay attention here because I'm about to go into the kind of detail that you'll love. You see, the Russians were not anticipating the kind of firepower that the British and French soldiers were able to bring to bear on them. The Allied soldiers were using the Miniball, a new and revolutionary projectile which increased the efficiency of the Allied small arms tenfold. The greatest examples of its effectiveness can be seen in the Battle of Alma itself, when Russian soldiers were brought face to face with its terrifying accuracy and range. The plan of the Russians had been to decimate the Allied armies with cannon fire and then finish them off with the bayonet, as was the norm. Little thought had been given to the significance of the new rifle, but what it comes down to is the technology of the miniball itself. 
the mini bullet was the invention of Frenchman Claude Etienne Minier in 1849. The idea was to replace the standard ball that went into the rifle with a more effective design. What came out was a bullet with a hollow case that expanded when the rifle was fired. Once expanded, the hollow base of the bullet gripped the inner grooving of the rifle barrel far more effectively than the old rifle ball ever did, and this meant increased accuracy, damage, and range. So, you see, history friends, it's not just the design of the rifle, but the design of the projectile that has changed. Soon, in the US Civil War, the Mini would be adopted by both sides, with devastating results. We're still about 10 years away from the development of the French Chassepot rifle that would become so popular, but the Mini was perhaps one of the most important technological advances in the second half of the 19th century. For the first time in a long time, it was the projectile, not the loading mechanism or the barrel design, that received proper attention, and as a result, it received a vital upgrade. One only has to look at the disparities of effectiveness between the two sides to note the effectiveness of the Mini. With the Battle of Alma behind them, and considered at least a relative success, the Allied marching continued towards Sevastopol. Sir John Burgoyne, Lord Raglan's engineering advisor, argued strongly during the march south that such an attack was too obvious, and that the Russian northern flank would surely be strongest since they expected the attack there. Burgoyne convinced the French commander, Marshal Saint-Arnaud, of this fact, and Raglan was encouraged by London to agree with whatever the French said, since the Anglo-French alliance was considered key to defeating the Russians in the Crimea. So instead of a straightforward march to the objective, we got an unnecessarily long campaign, which costed numerous lives and all but guaranteed a winter spent in Russia. Not a good time. The plan then was to besiege Sevastopol by breaking away from the support and safety of the fleet and marching inland in a kind of semi-circle motion, wheeling back underneath Sevastopol at the village of Balaclava. Once there, the Allies would link back up with the fleet and prepare for the final assault on Sevastopol. The march in the new direction then began on the 25th of September 1854. A month later, on the 25th of October, the Battle of Balaclava was about to begin. The battle began with the Russian artillery and infantry attack on the redoubts that formed the first Allied lines of defence. When the Turks manning these redoubts were beaten back, the Russian cavalry charged the British infantry that had formed the second line of defence, but these held firm and they would later become known as the Thin Red Line. The second charge took place when another body of cavalry advanced on Balaclava, but it was met by the British and French counterparts and they were driven back. Now the Russians went on the defensive. The light brigade of the British cavalry division charged the Russian positions at the far end of a mile-long valley, but they immediately came under fire from Russian artillery. French cavalry then charged, silencing the artillery that had been firing from the left, but nothing was done about the Russian cannon directly in front of, or to the right, of the soon-to-be-charging light brigade. The light brigade was about to charge into a straight valley that was covered by Russian cannon on all sides. The slaughter would make them famous, but obviously for all the wrong reasons. The industrial level of slaughter which resulted from having weapons, cannons and rifles so powerful and knew that their effects on man or horse were not fully known must have come as something of a shock to those who operated the cannon or fired the rifle. The accounts from those that rode in the charge of the light brigade show only too clearly how much damage the newer technology could cause. Expected to simply ride up and knock out the positions, it seems incredible to us that such orders were even given. 
In many ways, it was the result of a breakdown in communication, an order passed from Lord Raglan to Lord Lucan and then to Lord Cardigan. Cardigan did at least question the sanity of the order when he discovered what Raglan expected of his men. Allow me to point out to you that there is battery in front, battery on each flank, and the ground is covered with Russian rifle men. To this, Lucan replied, I know, but Lord Raglan will have it. We have no choice but to obey. Did they really have no choice but to obey? After the battle had ended and the charge of the Light Brigade had taken place, Lord Raglan reprimanded Lord Lucan. Lord Lucan, you are a lieutenant general and therefore should have exercised your discretion and not approving of the charge should have caused it not to be made. Terry Brighton clears the whole thing up for us and explains how easily the whole misunderstanding could have been resolved when he wrote... They did, in fact, have a choice. Lucan could have, and should have, discussed the order with Cardigan, agreeing that a charge into the muzzles of the Russian cannon meant the obliteration of the brigade. He should have sent the aide back to Raglan with this observation, requesting confirmation of the order. The misunderstanding would, then, have been revealed. Such a discussion should have come naturally since they were brothers-in-law, yet hardly a civil word had passed between Cardigan or Lucan since... Lucan married Cardigan's sister in 1829. At this most critical moment when a frank examination of their options could have saved the Light Brigade, they could not break through the rigid civility of a mutual disgust that had been building for 25 years. And so the Light Brigade advanced. The subsequent horror endured by the Light Brigade could have all been avoided had Cardigan assessed the situation realistically. Of course, if he knew very well that the planned charge was peppered with enemy cannon, refusing to charge would have seemed like common sense. Military planners around this time were not stupid, folks, and a wiser, perhaps more experienced commander would have seen something was amiss and would have asked Lord Lucan for clearer objectives or confirmation from Raglan, as Terry Brighton said. Raglan should share some of the blame too, since it was his responsibility to give clear and proper orders, especially during the chaos of battle. Brighton puts it best though when he said that Cardigan and Lucan were responsible for the disaster for the simple reason that they didn't use their initiative or stop to think rather than blindly following orders or sticking to their old petty rivalries. It mattered little to those that charged with the Light Brigade that day who had placed Cardigan or Lucan or indeed Raglan in their positions of command. As horses were shot from underneath men and shells cleaved out men's insides the Light Brigade pushed on relentlessly. It was once they had made it through the murderous fire that it became clear just how desperate their situation had become. The heavy brigade of cavalry had stopped their march in support of the light. Lucan had come to his own conclusion that the light would be wiped out soon enough and he didn't want to send his own cavalry into such a hopeless struggle. He even said to Lord Paget, who was standing by, They have sacrificed the light brigade. They shall not have the heavy if I can help it. Thus when the Russians overcame the initial shock at the Light Brigade's monumental achievement of simply passing their lines, the weight in numbers began to tell as the British were battled behind enemy lines and without their heavier support, the Light Cavalry then had to march back through the same storm they had just endured. To put it in perspective, of the roughly 670 British men known to have charged, 110 were killed, 129 were wounded, irreparably, and 35 were taken prisoner. Additionally, 375 horses were killed, and all this for no apparent gain. The Russians claimed victory, but a few weeks later, on the 5th of November, the Russians would be defeated, and it was this battle, not the one at Balaclava, 
which would break the will of Russia to fight and seal the fate of Sevastopol, which had been under siege since September 1854. The coverage by the media of the war was a new element that brought with it its own problems and benefits. It was good for the people to feel in tune with what was going on, but it was bad for the people who reported on the war to criticise British or, indeed, French policy, thereby influencing public opinion at home. While French censorship ensured that nothing important or cynical filtered back to Paris, London saw its free press adopt a life of its own and acquire some real power. Disasters like the one at Balaclava and the reports of the horrendous conditions made famous by Florence Nightingale drew mixed results from the British people who wanted to see the Tsar take a beating but also wanted to see their boys come home safe. The charge of the Light Brigade is often held up as the perfect example of incompetence, of how not to lead an army and, with good reason, it would take some time for the system to change in Britain and around the world and for merit to matter more in the military than wealth, but the war in the Crimea at least demonstrated that the continued reliance on aristocrats to do a soldier's job was endangering the very soldiers that Britain sent to war. The system would change less out of a sense of compassion or because of the times, but because Britain recognised it simply couldn't afford to put the lives of their soldiers in the hands of men so irresponsible, incompetent and unprofessional. The sale of commissions was thus abolished following the Crimean War, and this freed up space for a new breed of British military man, the kind the 20th century would soon get to know, the Tommy. The Russian position became untenable once Sevastopol finally fell after a year-long siege on the 9th of September 1855, and with British and French ships threatening St. Petersburg and the Baltic, and with Russian trade blockaded on all levels, the new Tsar, Alexander II, sued for peace with Britain, France, Turkey and Sardinia, and joined the Congress of Paris, a process which involved the signing of peace treaties from all sides on the 30th of March 1856, formally ending the Crimean War in the process. As per the terms of the treaty, Russia had to dissolve its fleet in the Black Sea, which had been practically destroyed anyway. The Black Sea was neutralised, meaning no warships could enter, though trade flourished through the now open lanes along the Danube and Black Sea in spite of this. Russia, in the eyes of Britain and France, had been stopped, temporarily at least, and Turkey as a consequence had been propped back up, as Wallachia and Moldavia had been granted to her, with the promise that she would treat her Christian subjects better. This was the last time Russia would fight France and Britain, but it was not the last time Russia would fight Turkey. The Ottoman Empire had been granted a stay of execution. No one was under any illusions as to the state of Constantinople. It was coming down, soon, but not yet. And that, folks, is the end of the remastered episode. I'd like to remind you of the talk episode to follow this, relatively unchanged from its original form, but released here anyway because of my OCD tendencies to have it in the remastered feed. Thanks very much for listening to this remastered episode, guys. Remember to check out the website, wdfpodcast.com, for all the ways you can support this exciting project of ours. Thanks very much for listening. And I will see you all, well, super, super soon.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.